Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who work in government or politics at any level and what they take from the experience. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. I am so excited and honored to present today's episode with Maria Teresa Kumar, the CEO of Voto Latino. Voto Latino is a nonpartisan grassroots political organization that educates and empowers a new generation of Latino voters and creates a more robust and inclusive democracy. In its 17-year history, it has been at the forefront of political, cultural, and digital trends for organizing and activating young Latinos. And it has been effective. In the last election cycle, it registered more than 600,000 new voters to participate in the 2020 election, and it also activated millions more to go and vote. And since 2012, it has registered more than 1.1 million new Latino voters. Maria Teresa is known as one of the most impactful leaders in the world of political engagement and empowerment. Some of her recognitions include Elle Magazine, which named her one of the 10 most influential women in D.C., Hispanic Executive, which named her among the 10 most influential Latinos, Fast Company, the well-regarded and widely read business magazine, described her as one of the most creative business minds in the country. And if all that wasn't enough, she has even been recognized with an Emmy nomination for her insights and commentary as a contributor to MSNBC. Maria Teresa is on this show, of course, because she started out as a staffer. In the late 1990s, she worked on Capitol Hill as a legislative aide to Congressman Vic Fazio, who was also chairman of the House Democratic Caucus. Today we talk about how Maria Teresa got into public service and politics, and how her time as a staffer informs her leadership of Voto Latino today. She and I recorded this episode on Monday, February 7th. Maria Teresa Kumar, welcome to Staffer. Thanks for having me, Jim. It is my pleasure uh, to have you today. Um, In preparation for today's interview, I did a little research on you and learned that you were born in Colombia, but your family Mm -hmm. came uh, to the United States, to California specifically, when you were very young. Uh, You grew up in Sonoma County. Tell me about what brought your family here and what growing up uh, was like. Sure. No. First of all, thanks for having me. I think it's always fun to get people's backstories of how, uh, and I think no, none of us ever have a, dot, a straight dotted line. So this is always fun. Yes. So I came to this country because actually my mother uh, was, as you mentioned, I was born in Colombia. Uh, and when I was one year old, my mother was a single mother and she met my dad. And my dad was a strapping six foot two uh, American of Danish stock and really striking. And so it's not a surprise that they've soon met and fell in love. Um, but shortly after, about a year or so later, my dad became very ill. Uh, he actually ended up suffering from encephalitis. And for those who don't know, it's a swelling of the brain. And it, he became very, very ill and had to convalesce. And so uh, unexpectedly, we were one of these accidental immigrants. So we, we didn't expect ever to leave Colombia. Uh, my dad was an English teacher at the time, and he was the director of English language at a center there where he met my mom. And shortly after, though, sadly, he got sick. And so they, they decided to move to America. Um, they were engaged, but not married. Uh, and my father was originally from this tiny little town called Geyserville, California in Sonoma County. And when I say tiny, that in the last census, it was 700 people big. Oh, wow. uh, so it was really tiny when my mom got there. And so my mom was transplanted for, and myself from Bogota, Colombia, which was closer like New York City at the time, it was close to six, seven million people. 
to somewhere there where it was very small. Uh, and we ended up at my grandparents' farm. And my grandparents were grape growers. Uh, they weren't vinters, they were grape growers. There's a big, fine distinction. They were farmers. Uh, and so while my father convalesced, my mother went to work in the field. And I was starting to learn how to navigate America uh, with my grandparents. And I have to say that that was the beginning of learning so much because my grandparents loved me profusely, but they did definitely saw the world in a different way uh, because this was the very first time that they saw a Latino as part of their family. And you can imagine everything that comes with all of that. So Yeah. So I know when you graduated from high school, you went to UC Davis to study international mm -hmm. affairs. Mm -hmm. But tell me, was, you know, was growing up in your household, you know, were international affairs often discussed or was policy discussed? Like, where did you catch the bug to study international affairs? International affairs. Well, so, you know, my, my parents always had, uh, so my mother would always ship me back to Columbia during the summers uh, for as long as I can remember. And my mother always said that it was because she wanted me to learn the culture and the community and the country and it was around when I was 14, I realized, oh, we, she can't pay childcare. <laughs> so <laughs> that, that's why I was being shipped off. But through that, I saw so many different worlds and so many different lenses. And I would spend some time in Cartagena, where my mother was from. I spent some time in Bogota, where she had other family. And it was a space where I saw Latinos being doctors, lawyers, janitors. I saw us in all our stripes without limitation. And so when I decided to, um, you know, what I decided to study at school had everything to do with my background, what I saw, but also I have to say, my dad gave me such a travel bug. My dad, believe this or not, Jim, he ended up in Bogota, Colombia because he was studying at uh, Alaska Methodist University. He thought it was too cold. So he applied on a scholarship. He got in to University of the Andes, Bogota, Colombia, thinking that it was going to be warmer. He's not, he was wrong. Um, but he packed his pickup truck and he drove from Alaska in 1968 with his dog, stopped by Geyserville to pick up some clothes and tell his parents that he wasn't going back to Alaska <laughs> and going to Columbia and drove all the way down to the Panamanian Highway. And the stories that he would tell me of his adventures, and I knew that that was for me. My dad always made me sure, my dad was a savant in many ways in the sense that he could he could say, thank you, I need a beer, how are you? Can you smile? And I changed in about 20 different languages. <laughs> And that was more because of what he picked up from people that he worked with. So it was really, he was, he was a fascinating, wonderful man. Incredible. Well, that spirit of adventure uh, obviously was passed down because when you graduated from college, you came to Washington, D.C. Um, mm -hmm. and began working for Congressman Vic Fazio, who was also mm -hmm. the chairman of the House Democratic Caucus. How did you land that job? I was so lucky, I have to say. Uh, I had been fortunate enough to, at UC Davis, they give one scholarship out to come study in Washington, D.C., and I was the recipient of it. So two semesters before, I had been fortunate enough to come and work at the Washington office on Latin America, because that was my background, and I fell in love with the city. And I said, you know, this is where I want to come after I finish my studies. And I remember graduating uh, from UC Davis. I had packed my bags and I was planning on coming out here to the city, not having a job, not having anything, but it's like, how hard can it be? Long story short, uh, my fairy godmother sh uh, showed up in, a, in the form of a former TA and a good friend. She happened to be on campus that day and she asked me what I was doing. I said, well, I'm graduating. She's like, well, do you have a job? I said, no. She's like, well, you know, your background is international relations, isn't it? I said, hey. She's like, 
Can you believe that Monica Maple Dixon, I didn't know who she was. She was like chief, uh, Vic Fazio's chief of staff and her LD happened to be in town interviewing positions. I said, really? She's like, they're going to be here today and tomorrow. Why don't you give them a call? I swear to goodness, I went, I gave them a call and Monica became my boss and Monica has had an incredible career. Uh, I was lucky and fortunate that Vic happened to be looking for a legislative correspondent in international affairs. <laughs> there was two positions. There was staff assistant and an LD for, for international affairs. And Jim, I have to say it was one of the best, but this is, and this is where, you know, things seem easier. And then you realize when they offered me the job, it was a whole $19,000 a year right. <laughs> and I didn't come from means. And so when they asked me, I said, I accepted the job. I said, yeah, I could be there in two weeks. And then I crunched the numbers and I had to call them back. I said, I'm so sorry. I'm very interested in this job, but I do not have first month's rent, last month's rent. I can't, I mean, all of these trappings that you need. And they thought I was negotiating, Jim. Mm. And they're like, okay. So I hung up and they came back like, well, what if we gave you $2,000 signing bonus? I said, that's wonderful. Can I get an advance? No. I said, then I still can't get there. Right. <laughs> so I ended up working for the summer at Wiggins Electric. And you know, those nifty little security tags that you see on CBS? Yeah. That was me for a whole summer doing that every single day, trying to save enough money just to come and work in Washington. And I think it speaks to why so many people right now today are talking about equity and fair wages on the Hill. Because if we really want policy distinctions and if we really want to have addressed the issues that so many people are grappling with, we need people from the community. And that is life experience. I was surprised to learn that a lot of my fellow staffers had parents that were subsidizing them. I didn't have a parent that could subsidize me. I was earning so little that I qualified for uh, housing uh, for the um, chapter eight, uh, not chapter, what is it called? Low-income housing mm -hmm. in Washington. That's how little I was making. Uh, and then you read the stories today and you see very much of the same. So there definitely is that my experience is definitely one that I think many people on the Hill are still grappling with that we need to address uh, 20 years later. You are so right. Um, it should not be a luxury to serve you know, the public in the form of being a government staffer at any level. Well, right? we miss, but, but by doing that, we also, we miss the nuances in why policy can and cannot work. Totally. Right. And by not having the people that are being impacted at the table, we end up going through a lot of rinse and repeat and missing opportunities. And I do think, for example, right now we're in a unique opportunity to address some really systemic inequalities and if we have the right people in the room who know what they are, not just through research, but through life experience, you fight differently. Yes. Well, that's a good transition to a transition that you made. So you then, uh, after your job on the Hill, you went and pursued a master's at the Kennedy School at Harvard. Mm -hmm. And somewhere along the way, it seems uh, you changed your career path from policy to political engagement and empowerment. Mm -hmm. So- Tell me that, uh, you know, the, the origin story of Voto Latino. So first of all, I have to say the origin story had everything to do with working on the Hill. I, my, my portfolio was appropriations and international affairs. And I would oftentimes get staffers that were now lobbyists working for tech companies at the time. And I would always ask why. Well, why are we doing this piece of policy? Why are we doing it? And oftentimes I realized they didn't know either. Hmm. And... I realized that if we were going to change policy, we actually have to go to through the advocacy. 
and that the best way to make change in Washington is to understand the why and the who and the where and the how. And when I went to the Kennedy School, I was fortunate enough to have a, a, I was a public policy fellow. So I received most of it was as a scholarship. Uh, And what made the Kennedy School so unique is that it allowed me to take classes in other campuses. So I took classes at Tufts on the main campus and I took a lot of classes at the business school. Ah. And I realized that what I really loved to do was social entrepreneurship. That And this was before it was a term, Jim, so I'm really dating myself. <laughs> I liked to borrow what was happening in business and how do we apply it for social good? How do you actually scale it for social good? And if you would ask me, Volta Latino, it was in the back of my mind. I had talked to Mick, um, um, Mickey Ibarra, who was a former White House advisor to Clinton. He was a longtime mentor. I had graduated from the Kennedy School. He's like, well, what would you like to do? I said, I would like to find a place to do high impact for the Latino community. I either want to start something or run something. And he's like, my goodness, do you have aspirations? He's like, what are you? And I little did I know, right? Like he, he was not wrong. It's really hard to start something new. Uh, and in the space of politics, Jim, where everybody says there's never enough room, I was like, but I just want to bring more people into the fold. In the, in the fold. Um, but before I did that journey, I went to the in corporate America. I worked for the advisory board for almost uh, almost two years, ah. and I worked for law media. And it was because I understood I understood that in order for me to start something or work at in some social enterprise, I needed to have business acumen. I needed to do the the fun stuff that no one likes to talk about: the accounting, <laughs> the people management, and the the stuff that are different types of skills. Um, but in that journey, when I was doing it, it was, I felt like I was, this was in my twenties. So I felt like I was going through my 20 and uh, my terrible twos, you know, the adulting phase that no one tells you. Uh, and, but I realized in retrospect, they were all putting everything together for Volta Latino. And so a year and a half after I had that conversation with Mickey, he met Rosario Dawson at a dinner and Rosario said, you know, I just finished uh, a public service announcement campaign with MTV. And we're about to launch it and it focuses on young Latinos. And I don't know if it could be more than that. And he's like, you know, I know exactly who you need to talk to. Incredible. And Jim, talk about a small world. I happened to be living in New York at the time. And so I met Rosario at, T- it's, this sounds like a movie. I met Rosario at TRL Studios on election day on November 4th of 2004. And she didn't know, wasn't sure what she wanted to do. And I wanted to make sure she was serious. And she was very clear with me, Jim. She said, we don't, Volta Latino, all you have is a name, a PSA. There's no funding. You're free to do with what you want. Let's see if you can make it happen. I fell in love with it because it was the very first time I heard someone, and this was John Leguizamo, say out loud, register to vote for your family. I heard Tego Calderon say, register to vote because I can't. And I knew why he couldn't, like millions of people around me, of young Latinos and young immigrants. And I fell in love because even though I had worked on Capitol Hill, even though I had worked, I had gone to the Kennedy School of Government, it's the very first time I heard someone say that I was American out loud, mm. even though I felt it profusely. And that is what my journey is that I knew that there was young people all over the United States that were making big decisions for their families, whether it was navigating America at the doctor's office or at work for their parents, that if we can inspire them to participate in our democracy, they could be incredible agents of change. And granted, it took me, uh, and, and people, when I, when I went down this journey, Jim, people told me afterwards, I thought, we thought you were ruining your career. We didn't know what you were doing. You know, you were talking to talking about this thing about called technology. <laughs> You're tell, talking about inspiring young people. Young people don't care. And 
more worst of all, you were going to talk to Latinos in English. And I was like, clearly you didn't know, you know, you didn't know my experience. And second of all, I wasn't doing this for a career. I was doing it as a, really a, a social enterprise, recognizing the vast need that the only way that the community can level up is if they participate. And that is through voting and then running for office and then that making demands as our democracy should. So take me back to that moment where you've made this commitment to building this organization. But to your point, it's really just a name. It has a great association with Rosario Dawson, mm-hmm. but you don't have much more than that. Um, were, you know, were people skeptical of the success uh, or the, the prospects of success? Mm-hmm. And how did you overcome that? So I met Rosario in, in November and I went knocking on my mother's door in March <laughs> and she had a boomerang child knocking on her door back in Kenwood, California, which is the you know, backyard of Silicon Valley. And my mother um, is the immigrant woman with grit. She had to go, my father was always sick um, and it was always hard. But she always had grit, vision, and still does. And she said, if this is what you want to spend your time doing, I understand you can't give me any more, you can't support me financially anymore, but I'll support you. And so my mom is basically, I quit my job. I had very little savings. I had a credit card. Don't fund anything on your credit card, guys, if you're listening. <laughs> Terrible idea. But I didn't have capital. Um, but I was fortunate enough that the Kennedy School, in order to graduate from the Kennedy School gym, you had to take on a client. And so I called my alma mater and said, hey, would anybody be interested in helping me write a business plan for this idea of this organization? And two young women stepped up. I'm still really good friends with one of them. Uh, And they helped me design not only the business plan, but they allowed me to do the oppo research that I couldn't. Mm. Right. Under the guise of two graduate students, they were calling people and saying, what would you do if you had all the money in the world and start targeting Latinos to vote? You'd be surprised that back then they're like, we'd start a website. I'm like, oh, that's easy. I could start a website. <laughs> GoDaddy.com, right? <laughs> and so some of the barriers of entry that folks thought they were, because it was all technology-based, just didn't exist, right? It was very easy. Um, that's like, but the other stuff was hard. Um, in DC, no one wanted to share power. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was, I, I mean, this is where I came from, and it was painful to hear people say, why, why you? Uh, you don't, they don't like to share power. In New York, in New York, it was interesting because I had a network in New York because I'd lived there, but they didn't really understand this idea that Latinos spoke English in New York. And it was in Silicon Valley. You know, again, I'm very much of, you put it out in the universe. I happened to be, I happened to have moved back home and friends of mine were able to put me in touch with different people in Silicon Valley that happened to be at the eve of the first recession. Uh, and so a lot of people were still in Silicon Valley because they were Renaissance people. They were trying to use art and break things to create better things. And so a lot of people had just received pink slips. And so I had the mind of some of the most interesting people you could possibly imagine that you read about today yeah. uh, that are friends, but because they had nothing much to do. Uh, <laughs> and uh, and that's how it started. And the people that I expected to be right up there were not. And it was a beautiful community in Silicon Valley of of women and, you know, ingenious young men that said, yeah, let's, let's try this because I don't really understand the Latino and I really don't understand whether they speak English or not, but of course that's how you'd talk to anybody on the internet. Uh, and Jim, believe it or not, it was when we were part of the movement back in 2006, where all millions of people marched on the street for immigrant rights. And up to that point, 
it was the largest civil rights rallies of our nation's history. Wow. And it was and it, it was all through the internet and through cell phones and it was bigger and it was on the eve of the of the Arab Spring. No one talked about it that way, but that's exactly what it was because it was young Latinos mobilizing using the internet and finding their agency. Um, at Volta Latina, we were the, one of the very first organizations to do peer-to-peer -peer texting for political empowerment. Um, and it's fun because now everybody uses hustle, but we were pre-hustle. And so we've always tried to be on that leading edge of technology, but applying it for social good. Yeah. Um, you know, something that uh, you have said, and it, which I, I believe to be true, and I think it's very difficult to dispute, is that politicians of both parties do a very poor job of targeting the Latino community. Um, you know, to the staffers who are listening today, mm -hmm. uh, Democrats, Republicans, uh, some people of color, some not, uh, what would your advice be to those staffers who are listening so that they could turn and give advice to their bosses? I would encourage, so this is the best, what I encourage people to, to look at what, when you're struggling for an issue is always come with data. Always really understand your district really understand uh, what people are trying to communicate to you uh, and how you could be better. I'll give you an example. When we, we went into Georgia back in 2016, that's when we started doing work. And we started doing work in Nevada, Colorado, Arizona, North Carolina, Texas, and Arizona in 2010. And people said, why there? None of those states are up for grabs. I said, because right now they could be 4% of the electorate but in the classrooms, they're 32%, they're 50%. In Georgia, we went into Georgia in 2016 because I went to go to go give a speech at a, at a local college. And we went into this tiny little town on the outskirts of Atlanta and every other marking was of a Latino store. And I was blown away. And I was like, how big is the population here? And they're like, oh, it's really small. I said, they're like, yeah, but we're starting to struggle because while they're only two or three percent of the electoral base, there's 16 percent of the, cl the classrooms. Wow. I said, that's the future. Yeah. And so it was our way to be able to demonstrate through data. And so it's absolutely important to have life experience and absolutely important to have nuance. But if you really want to make change people's hearts and minds, you need the data and the research. And it's and it's a combination of both. And so if someone's saying, well, should I do anything in the Latino community? I said, you better believe they're half your classrooms. <laughs> I would encourage you to do so, regardless of where you are right now. For the second year in a row, for the second decade in a row, Latinos are responsible for over 50 percent of our population growth in the United States. And we are my children who are nine and seven. They represent the first majority minority country. And so if you ask me what gets me out of bed every day is that I deeply believe that we need all Americans enfranchised and fully voting so that we could have real policy that addresses everyone's needs so that we can get to a more perfect union. And the only way we do that, though, is to ensure that everyone's playing by the same rules. And, you know, my biggest concern right now is we don't have enough people across party stripes recognizing that I can argue with you on policy decisions and nuance but we shouldn't be arguing on whether everybody has equal access to voting uh, because then all of a sudden we're not, we're not actually all engaged in the same democracy and it becomes philosophical versus applicable. Mm -hmm. And so when you, when you assess the state of our politics as mm -hmm. it relates to the Latino community, how do you, you know, do you vacillate between optimism and pessimism? 
or do you um, are you just energized by the prospects of that future that you described? And and the reason here, I'll give you a little like under under the hood of my thinking. You know, I can look at both parties and really um, see some very serious deficiencies using the kindest word that I can. Uh, you know, having been in democratic politics a long time, Democrats can look at the Latino community and think, this is great. These demographics are great for us. We win, you know, two out of three Latinos right now with just with patience. Look at all the, the you know, the, the votes we're going to get over time. And so maybe they don't do as much outreach or or do it as well as they could. And Republicans, after losing to Obama, they went through a process of saying, you know, look at the, the future of the country. Our demographics are changing. We need to do a better job uh, reaching out to Latinos in particular. But then along came the Trump administration. And I, I don't think a fair analysis can be done except that, that one has to conclude they've gone in the absolute opposite direction and are antagonizing, antagonizing the Latino community to squeeze as much vote as they can out of different communities. So, so that's my, you know, that's a long way of, of getting around to a question. Are you optimistic more or are there days that you find yourself pessimistic? I think we're, right, we're living in a really unique moment in our country. Uh, and I don't say it lightly. At Voto Latino, when we started, our job was to register voters and get them out to vote. Right after the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, the best underreported fact about Shelby County versus Eric Holder was that Shelby County had experienced in the 2010 census, so three years earlier, a 297% increase in the Latino population. Wow. And there's 22 jurisdictions that followed, and every single one had experienced at least a 90% increase. The modern Jim Crow laws are about disenfranchising communities of color. And it starts with the Latino community. And there is a disproportionate impact in African-American community, Latino communities, and indigenous communities. And it's by design. And if we can't agree to that, then that's where the problems start lying, right? Um, And the great example is that right now, Texas has had a fair free election in the 2020 election. They're considered the hardest to vote state. Uh, not by a little, but by dead last 50. And they have decided that they're going to create more voting restrictions that happen to lie among young people. Uh, and every American should take exception with that. Yes. And so when you ask me if I feel optimistic, the when I feel optimistic is what we did right after Trump. When Trump was elected, uh, the day after his inauguration, Americans from all over the country in every single state the reddest of the reddest states marched. And we did it in solidarity with every single continent in this country, in this world. Every single continent, people marched in protest. Yeah. And then what we did was we put our heads down. We organized, we registered, we ran for office. We did, sometimes people said, did I have to change? And I said, no, what are you really good at? Focus on that. Because we need a collective, you know, collective beauty of skill. And we stepped up to the plate. And in 2018, it was the most uh, voters ever in a midterm election in 100 years. And then we did rinse and repeat, and we did it more in 2020. And what concerns me now is that that same vote that many of your listeners may have been able to cast in 2020, because of the changing of the rules, despite a fair, free, certified election by Republicans and Democrats across all 50 states, they may not be able to cast that ballot. 
That concerns me. The other thing that concerns me is that people say we're tired and this is too hard. I said, no, no, the hard part was what we did. We know how to do that. We know how to organize. We know how to vote. We know how to volunteer to our best of service. And we also know how to run for office. And right now we are in the eye of the storm because people expect us to be tired, but they don't realize that if we do not engage at the levels that we did during the midterm last year, I'm sorry, the presidential two years ago, if we don't do that with the same passion and love and nurture that our democracy beckons and hopes for and needs right now and demands, then the next presidential election may not be certified. Because unlike a group of the majority of a multicultural America that said, we did not like the results of 2016, but we're going to work our butts off to make sure that our voices are heard and we change the direction of our country. The opposite group of people tried to have an attempted coup where five people died, several people were maimed, and now there's over 724 people right now getting prosecuted. And we have a leadership in the Republican Party that sadly has not condemned it, except for two very brave ones. And at the end, again, if we all believe in this experiment of democracy, we have to play by the same rules. And we need more Republicans coming on board and saying, this is not how we are going to conduct ourselves. And if they don't want to switch parties, become independent, because at least you tell the group at your, you know, your constituents that things are not all right. And then we can have a conversation. There is really such beauty and inspiration in truth and access to the ballot. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what Voto Latino is all about. Um, are Do you have to modify the message at all for the young Latino community? Or like, what are you finding resonates with them most when they might have, you know, fair reason to be disillusioned? Right. Well, so we focus, uh, 90% of our work is focused on young Latinos. And that's because they are the, so in 2010, Latinos became the second demographic, but we were all under 18, not me. <laughs> the majority of us were under 18. And we didn't come of age as the second largest voting demographic until 2018. Okay. So everybody aged in. Mm -hmm. And that is why when I say the modern Jim Crow laws were preparing us for today, they saw the aging in and that's when they decided that they were going to take it to the courts very smartly. And so for young Latinos, we have to constantly remind them of the little wins of what happens when they participate. And I've been fortunate enough that roughly, if I'll give you an example in Georgia. In Georgia, we registered 23,000 individuals. Uh, they And of those they, that voted, they re registered and voted. Of those 10,000 were first time voters. Biden won by 11,000 votes. Right. Right. We did the exact same thing in Arizona. In Arizona, we registered 32,000 people that went out and voted. He, you know, 50% of them were first time voters. He won by 12,000. And we did it, in, we didn't do it all across the country. We did it in eight states back to know your data because I knew where the opportunity was back in 2010. It's been a long experiment, Jim, <laughs> but we built it. And so when I don't have to, I don't have to convince a young person that climate change is real. I don't have to convince a young person that a woman should have agency over her body. I don't have to convince a pers young person that who they love is no one else's business but their own. And I don't have to convince that everybody deserves a fair wage. What I do need to do is convince them that if they occupy the system, they occupy the voting booth, that the system is not rigged. It works for those who occupy it. And our charge is to occupy it so we can see the democracy that we believe should be the future of this country. So Voto Latino has been, as you, as you said, at the bleeding edge of tactics and technology in campaigns. What are some of the things that uh, you found to be really effective 
the last cycle or maybe that you're experimenting experimenting with this cycle? So we did a... Uh... One of the things that we're tackling right now is the disinformation. If you were to ask me, what are the two concerns that I have at Voto Latino is that it's there's real voter suppression and there's a lot of disinformation, misinformation, disproportionately targeting the Latino community so that we stop believing in democracy. So we stop believing that the system works so that we stop uh, believing in our institutions so that we stay home and other actors take over. And so one of the things that we started learning is how do we identify people who are on the fence that may be susceptible to this information and can we do interventions? And uh, we did a study back in October, uh, I'm sorry, May of 2021, where we found that there was a cohort of Latinos who were disproportionately hesitant to take the COVID vaccine. Uh, we learned why we, and you know, what were their hesitancies? And then we partnered with Google and YouTube in June of in July of last year. So it was in Latino specific zip codes where we knew that the, they could have taken the vaccine by then because it was widely available, but they had low they had low vaccination rates. And we identified and did a smattering of videos and messaging. And long story short, um, we had done this very similar study under the auspices of election of why people weren't registering to vote in the year before. And the people who saw our video were nine times more likely to get registered to vote based on messages that we basically repeated to them. The people who took the disinformation vaccine, this is the fun part, they were 54 more times more likely to search, get a COVID vaccine. Wow. The people who saw our video, roughly 82,000 people actually went and got a vaccine and it was less than 80 cents on the dollar. And what was exciting was that not only did the intervention work because they got healthy, but it also demonstrates that that person, after they got vaccinated, they won't share information either. Right. So it's a different type. So it's two types of inoculation. Yes. And so now what we're learning is, okay, so we have a profile of what those individuals may be who are more susceptible, more and now we are developing programs to ensure that they still participate and believe in government based on our findings. Uh, it was fun because Google said we had to run the math three times because we couldn't believe our numbers. Uh, and we're partnering now with other with other organizations because we want people to get the right information. We want we want every American, regardless of how they see the world, we, we want every one of healthy. Um, yeah. Um, let me ask you a question about your leadership style. I mean, you you founded Voto Latino 17 years ago. Um, you've been CEO now for uh, all that time. How have you changed and how would you describe yourself uh, as a leader? Yep. No. So I co-founded with with Rosario. She's still part of the team, <laughs> and she is my my partner in crime, uh, who's given me so much leeway uh, to do it. And I think that one thing, co-founding something with someone allows you to have thought partnership, uh, and it allows us. It allowed me to really open go into different worlds. I was very much a policy wonk, as you mentioned, and I love tech. And then she gave me the perspective of the creative and how you use creative and how do you meet people where they are, especially in places where people don't see politics playing well in their life. And so together, I think that that's been an incredible partnership. Um, I will tell you, my leadership has changed. It was you know, the hardest. I've had two really hard leadership moments. The first one was getting the organization off the ground. Uh, as I shared with you, I was paying it off out of, of, out of my credit card, uh, convincing people to change their mind about a community mm. as an almost impossible task. 
because that means that it's not just trying to get from A to B, but I actually have to change your mind on how you perceive me and the work that I'm trying to achieve of the people that I'm talking about. Um, I was very fortunate that one of the first, my first employee at Voto Latino, his name is Steve Alfaro, and he's an artist through and through, and perhaps one of the most dynamic individuals. Uh, he was with me for the first 10 years of the organization, and everything that was beautiful came out of him. Uh, and we just really, you know, we, it took me three years to be able to afford him. Uh, I paid, he, he and I moonlighted, and then I finally was able to offer him an official job. Um, and then there was another young woman, her name is Jessica Reeves, who now works for SBA. And she also made, she also pushed my boundaries. Uh, she came to me one time and said, I want to, you know, we're working with three other organizations and we, we'd like to launch National Voter Registration Day. I'm like, good luck with that. She's like, no, no, no. I'm like, I said, she's like, no, really. And so to give you like, my thing is like, if you have an idea and you think it's going to work, write it up and I will sell the hell out of it. Anyway, so she wrote it up and it was this idea of turning National Voter Registration Day into a holiday to register to vote. And Volta Latino, we became the, we were the creative sponsors, the fiscal sponsors. We raised the money for it. The first time off bat, we registered 300,000 people. It is now a national holiday and nobody has any idea that we were behind it, but it was to an incredible, talented, innovative person who I was able to give space to, to, to shine and to do that. Um, but I have to say then, but then after the 2016 election, um, my team did everything right and everybody was devastated. Um, we started at Volta Latino, we actually had to start collecting calls because families were calling us asking if the, a power attorney was enough to give to their neighbor in the event that that parent got deported. Oh. That's not what we were set up to do. Um, and we had donors who, you know, loved them, but they were like, we're too depressed to continue giving. I was like, there's no plan B. There's like, we, we have, to, this is where you double down. I am, uh, you know, I was raised in a matriarchic family. Like there, the, you never have an option, but you fight, right? Like that is, that is how you're built. Uh, and so it was really hard. And so I had to let go of some of my really talented staff because they wanted raises and we just didn't have funding. Yeah. Uh, it was the closest that Volta Latino has ever come to almost not being in existence. Um, but with grit and with Jessica's partnership, uh, we were able to get through and we were able to find incredible fundraisers that really saw, you know, saw something there because I was still trying to convince people that registering to vote online should be like selling Nikes. It's, uh, it's the only thing that's scalable. Nike doesn't go door to door, Jim, to convince you to buy their shoes. We should be doing democracy that way. That's <laughs> right. right. <laughs> so, so to give you a long story short, you know, we, I had to go through a different leadership and change my board and say, okay, we'll come to Jesus. Like where, where do we want to go? We continue being small or we could actually leverage and scale what we know really works. And coming into the pandemic in 2016, we had raised $6 million. We proudly had registered 170,000 people. Um, coming into the pandemic, we had raised 9 million. We had registered 88,000 people. And our goal was to register half a million. And so the challenge was that when every when the pandemic came, all our sister organizations shut down. Wow. They couldn't go to door to door. Right. They couldn't be in front of the Walmart. They couldn't do they and we said, okay, well, we're gonna have to fill the void. And we raised thirty-six million dollars. We registered six hundred six hundred and sixteen thousand people, eighty-three percent of them who went out and voted, uh, made it onto voter rolls and voted. Um, and disproportionately young people. And 
we went from trying to target and mobilize 1.2 million uh, low propensity voters to again trying to fill a gap, and we actually targeted 3.7 million low propensity voters in Florida, in Arizona, in Nevada, in Colorado, in Texas, and in the places that people said was impossible, we were there. Florida remains impossible. That could be another conversation. But, <laughs> right. but luckily we were in Georgia. Luckily we were in Pennsylvania. Luckily we were in Arizona, right? So. Yeah. Florida's a whole other episode. I have a couple of, of recurring segments that I like to ask people. And one of them is called In the Vault. Can you tell me about a time when you made a mistake and what you learned from it and how you recovered? Yeah, no, I think that one of the biggest mistakes was um, was right after the 2016 election, I just hit the road and knowing that we needed to raise raise funding. And at that time, I, in retrospect, my, my team needed me because it was traumatic mm -hmm. what had just happened. Um, many of them were either undocumented or their loved ones were undocumented. And what is different, I would say, from working in the environmental movement, you can work in the environmental movement and go home and you could have a moment. But when you are working in the work that Voltatino does, you can't escape it because it is so personal. The people you love can be on the verge of deportation or you yourself could be on the verge of deportation, yeah, even though you're a DACA recipient. And then you have a, a person that is an autocrat who is raising his political profile all on the backs of your of your community. We don't talk about the rise of hate crimes in the Latino community, but it was very real under Trump. Um, and so for me, it was so focused on getting this person out that I didn't spend as much time nurturing the team as they needed. And that's, that's hard. Uh, uh, and in retrospect, I would have done it slightly different, but at the same time, what we don't have is time, right? And I knew the moment that he got elected that we had less than four years to get him out. And so it was, you know, not always, I would say my elegant moments, but it was very perhaps, and perhaps one of the most intense moments, both because I was trying to manage, you know, a family and an organization and try to shed truth to people in the progressive movement that said, we keep saying, well, I was, I'm just too tired. I'm like, we, we again, as a woman of color who immigrated to this country and who has been privileged to travel so many places, if my mother had ended up in Sweden, I would never be a Swede. Hmm. What makes America beautiful is that this is my country and the country of my family and it's worth fighting for. And if we forget any of that, and if we give in any of that, we cease to be American collectively. And recognizing what we're fighting right now, it's absolutely that. And we have to make sure that as a multicultural America, we are very much an experiment that has never happened in any place on earth. But at the same time, what makes this beautiful is that all the immigrants that come to this country are entrepreneurs because we believe that we can make the best versions of ourselves here and not any place else. And that feeds us and it feeds the nation. And we have to continue making sure that our promise is real and that our access to the voting booth is real. And sometimes when you are an entrepreneur, things happen well and sometimes they're indelicate. And I am pleased that, you know, the organization came out of on top. Um, but I have an awesome team. 
And we just brought on board this young woman. Her name is uh, Lisette Ocampo, and she's an awesome executive director. I have Amir Patel, who runs my program like you would never believe. And we're about to hire a couple other people that we can't share with you. But we have Kenny Sandoval, who's our VP of campaigns. Like the whole team has the right energy, and I am deeply privileged to get to work with them. Uh, and that they're sticking around, and they see the possibility, um, and that they're 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 if not more creative and more far charging than I am. And that to me is exciting. Well, I feel privileged to have had you on today's episode of Staffer, and I am deeply appreciative of of you, not just your time, your contributions and your leadership uh, to this country, because everything you said is true, and I agree with it, and you've made our country better and are making it better, and so thank you. Thank you for the conversation. It's been fun. My pleasure. Thank you. You're too kind. It takes all of us. <laughs> it does. All our talents. It does. <laughs> I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all. Thanks all.